You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. I couldn't get a song out of my head this morning when I was getting ready. And uh, even as we were singing about waiting on the Lord and just practicing the presence of God, I wonder if you were here last week and if you weren't, it's okay, or maybe you were watching online, but I wonder how many of us put into practice what we talked about last week, because you can hear a lot of things, but unless you actually put it into practice, you haven't learned anything. So I know it's hard to wait on the Lord. I know it's hard to carve out those moments. So even as I'm thinking, I wonder how many of you took the week to say, you know what, I'm going to practice the daily office. I'm going to do like the psalmist says, and in the morning and evening and at noon, I'm going to cry aloud, pray, or maybe even bring a complaint. Some of you said it really freed me up that I could, in the middle of the day, not just have to think of something really holy, but I could actually just go complain to God. Sure you can. It's a lamentation. The psalmist did it, so sure. But did you even do that? Did you take the time to wait on the Lord? Did you take the time? To just spend time in his presence. And, and, and I don't know, but I, for me, I did. I, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to preach one thing and then do another. And so this week I was just adamant. And there were moments where it was like in my mind, I'm fighting to get there. But man, when I did, and it was, yeah, I told you, just like I said, there would be these moments where things would cross my mind. I'm like, oh, just let it go. Just keep on going and come back to whatever that one word that I was focusing on, whether it was just peace or the name of Jesus or defender or provider or sustainer or sufficiency, just whatever word I felt like the Holy Spirit would bring to me. That's the one that I would focus on for whatever it was, five minutes, just to be in the presence of God. So this morning, as I was doing that, even on a Sunday morning, oh, I'm going to, because here's my thinking, right? None of this is here on my notes, but I just want to encourage you and exhort you. I was like, well, it's Sunday. I'm going to worship Jesus. I'm going to be, you know, holy today. I'm the pastor. I don't need to go sit down in my closet and do my little meditation and, and just get alone with God. Oh, yes, I do. Oh, yes, I do. And as I was sitting there, that's what I started this, this old song came to my mind as I'm asking God, what's the word that I'm just going to kind of focus in on about who he is and his character? And all I could think of was, anointing, fall on me, anointing, fall on me. Let the power of the Holy Ghost fall on me, anointing fall on me. Just a moment with God in His presence. 
So what's the, go- what's the goal? What's the agenda? That is the goal. That is the agenda. Just to be with him. And all that we're learning and all that we're trying to put into practice throughout this entire series, Break My Soul, whatever, this is like week seven. All of this is so that we can love God and love people better. Listen, the goal of Christianity is that we would love better. So what do you mean? That's what Jesus said in Matthew, right? This is the greatest commandment. At the heart of a mature believer is someone who wants to practice the presence of God and practice the presence of other people. Jesus refused to separate these two, although we often do. He's like, no, you can't separate these two, the practice of the presence of God and the practice of the presence of people. So I come back to Matthew 22, which is what we started this whole series about, and we keep coming back to again and again. This is the goal, if you will, that we would love better. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So the goal of this life is that we would love God and that we would love people better like Jesus. If we want to be more like Christ, which is the purpose of spiritual formation, which is the purpose of all that we're talking about, to become more like Christ, spiritual maturity, then we follow in his footsteps and he loves the best. Jesus loves the best. As one writer puts it, love is to reveal the beauty of another person to themselves. Love is the beauty, love is, the, is the, to reveal the beauty of another person to themselves. Isn't that what Christ has done by his spirit to us? Jesus did this so well with every person that, he's, that he met. Compassion marked his life and showing others the beauty of who they are in Christ. He exhorted us to do the same. John 15, this is my command, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. We must be whole people in order to wholly love God and to wholly love others. That's the goal of all of this is that we would wholly love God and wholly love others more and better than we did when we first started. I think most of us will believe that statement that I just read that's up on the screen is true. But there's a huge difference between knowing what to do and then knowing how to do it. There's a lot of things that I know, I know what I should do, but I'm not really sure how I'm supposed to do it. Like maybe it's like change a tire. I know how to do that, but maybe there's some of you like, I know what to do. I need to take this flat tire off. I just don't know how to do it. Part of growing into an emotionally mature Christian, which is what we're talking about, is learning how to effectively and practically apply the truths that we are learning, the truths that we say we believe. Because belief alone just puts us on the same level as demons. Hello? Like they believed in Jesus, so belief alone isn't where it stops for us. The kind of faith that saves us is the same kind of faith that transforms us and changes us. Now, I'm not saying that you're demonic. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we've all acted a little demonic in our lives. That's probably true. But what I am saying is there are a lot of things as Christians we believe to be true, which means we know what to do, but we don't know how to live it out. Or we don't live it out. 
some of the things we've already talked about. And we mentioned, like, how can I be angry and not sin? How can I grieve and mourn like one who has hope, but still grieve and mourn properly? How do I wait on God, as we just sang? How do I do that? How do I speak the truth in love? How do I, how do I teach myself to be slow to speak and quick to listen? I know what to do, but how do I do it? Jesus knew what you and I know. If you've gone to church for any amount of time, you know this, and Jesus knew this, that an inspirational message is not enough to change your life. An hour and a half on Sunday morning is not enough to change your life. He inspired a lot of crowds. He drew a lot of crowds, but he walked with 12. That's why we believe in discipleship, why it's so important, why Jesus said to go and make crowds. No, he said, go and make disciples. Jesus lived this out practically. Therefore, he was modeling it for us that we would love God and love people better. And his disciples who walked closely alongside Jesus began to slowly learn how they could love God more and how they could love people better. They were spiritually maturing, slowly but surely. And this is where we are today, slowly but surely. To be disciples of Jesus, we're learning how to love God more and to love people better, and we have to be willing to ask God to show us how to do what we know what to do. How am I going to apply and do what I know to do now? Because once you've heard it here, you know what to do. Again, well, I, don't, I didn't know anything about that daily office thing. Oh, yes, you did. Well, I didn't know anything about that Sabbath thing. Oh, yes, you do. Well, I didn't know anything about... Yes, we do. And not just what you hear here, but what you read here. And so now I know what to do, so how do I do it? How do I do what God has called me to do so that I can obey him and grow up? Why don't you say this with me? It's time to grow up. Yeah, a little bit like you believe it. It's time to grow up. The question I want to ask you when it comes to growing up, spiritual maturity, is how old do you think you are emotionally? I won't tell you which staff member recently did a test about his, emo- oh, I gave away at least the, the gender, his emotional maturity, and he came back, he's like, you know, it's like, I was adolescent in some of these areas. And I said, Keevan, I'm t- oh, I mean, it's like, I don't want to know, don't, I don't want to know what that test is, because I don't want to take it. Because then I'm going to know what I need to do, and not necessarily know how to do it, Right? But the reality is, is we all have this spiritual age, if you will, but this emotional age. And it's important to know this. How old are you emotionally, so to speak? Because psychologically, if you've experienced, say, trauma at a young age, most in the counseling field would say that unless you've honestly dealt with that trauma with God and with other people, that's where your emotional age stopped maturing. No matter your physical age, you could still be an emotional infant. An emotional child, an emotional adolescent, or hopefully where we're going with the help of the Holy Spirit and by God's grace through applying what we know and now we're doing it to be an emotional, healthy adult. When it comes to getting better at loving God and loving people, I think we can admit that loving God can sometimes be the easier of the two in the maturation process, right? Now, I'm not going to go into the negative reasons why I believe that's true, because sometimes we just create a God in our own making like an imaginary friend, and that's why it's easy to get along with that God, but it's not the one true God that we're getting along with. 
But a lot of times, like, we can have those moments, and maybe you did this week, and you can have that moment with God. We spend alone time with him. With Jesus, we're in solitude, and we have this sweet fellowship with God. And then we go out in, back into the normal world, and we, we encounter people, and we wonder where in the sweet fellowship did that sweet Jesus go? Because it's like, man, I don't feel like being sweet right now to you. But see? And, and yet we had that moment with God, but the people, man, it's like we say oftentimes, Lord, it's not you that I have a problem with, it's all these people. That's the issue. But Jesus showed us that loving relationship with God absolutely yielded and produced a love for people that he compassionately spent time with and listened to and gave his attention to. He loved them well because he loved God well. The reason this is so hard for us is because, admittedly, we're typically at the center of our own universes. Happen to have a water down there? Thank you. Well, it's enough. The reality is we are bent towards narcissism. And in our spiritual formation and growing in Christ-likeness, we are growing out of that narcissistic approach to life. And emotionally healthy spirituality allows us to look at other people the way that God sees them and not just look at ourselves. I mean, I know that's a big word these days in, in therapy and counseling and how do you deal with narcissism and how do you get over the fact that you might have grown up in a house full of narcissists and it's like, well, the reality is we all are until Jesus changes us from the inside out. There's a 20th century Jewish theologian by the name of Martin Buber who calls this type of relationship that we're supposed to have an I-thou relationship. This means that you and I recognize that we are made in the image of God, but so are other people. So is everybody else. They're made in the image of God. So that means that they are a thou, I-thou. We might say in maybe 21st century language, I and you. It's I and you. I'm made in the image of God, and so are you. The opposite of this is an I-it relationship, and that's where a lot of us land many times, where we treat other people as a means to an end, as a commodity, something to be used for my good pleasure, an object to be used for my purposes to get what I want. And this matters. How you see other people. Is it I, you, or I, it? Because it's impossible to love people the way that God loves people until we see people the way that God sees people. And it's I and you. I'm made in the image of God, and you're made in the image of God. This type of divine sight, if you will. This vision to be able to see people the way God sees them is a characteristic of emotionally healthy spirituality. People are not commodities. People are, are not things that we use and then throw away if they don't produce what we want. People are not stepping stones to get to where I want to get. People are not disposable, even when difficult. People are image bearers of God. And we're supposed to be, listen, with believers, co-heirs with Christ. How do you co-heir something with somebody that you won't be with? In Christ, 
loved us and loved the church, and he did so in such a way that he showed us how to love one another. It's outlined in 1 Corinthians 13. Some of you are so familiar with that love passage, but that's how we are supposed to love one another. The I-you relationship, the body of Christ in particular, brothers and sisters in Christ, we're supposed to be patient and kind and not envying and not boasting and not proud, not dishonoring others, not self-seeking, not easily angered, not keeping records of even wrongs. We don't delight in evil. We rejoice in truth. We protect. We trust. We hope. We persevere. Love never fails. Or another command Jesus gave us, one with verifiable reason, was John 13, where he said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, your love for one another, everybody else is going to know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So the primary aspect of emotionally healthy spirituality is loving others well. Now let's just be honest right now and admit the reason that we don't, the reason that we don't love each other well, and the reason it's so difficult at times is because we, we have conflict. Anybody have any conflict with anybody? Okay, yes, we do. It's normal. But another aspect of emotionally healthy spirituality is the ability to handle and resolve conflict maturely. I think we all know why this is necessary. Because we are human, we're going to have conflict. Because we are just human, we're going to have conflict. And because of the devil, he loves conflict. And he loves for us to have conflict with one another. He loves for us to have conflict in the body of Christ. So he's constantly sowing seeds of discord. It's one of his strongest and most successful weapons against the church. Getting Christians to bite and devour one another. Galatians 5, 14 and 15, Paul speaking to the church. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. What does he do? He goes back to what Jesus said in Matthew. Love your neighbor as yourself. Then he says in verse 15, if you don't do this, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So if you have conflict with somebody in the body of Christ, so often we don't know how to handle it in a spiritually mature way, and we think that we're the only people going through this, and that person is unreasonable, and I've got every right to do what I want to do and not have to work this out. First of all, let me tell you, this has been going on since the fall. It's been going on in the church since the church was instituted. I mean, we can go all the way back to Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Peter. We can go back to the Reformation and Luther and Erasmus. We can go through all the church fathers. We can go even to modern day. We continue to conflict with one another, have these conflicts, and instead of figuring out a way to work them out maturely and spiritually and wholly, we devour and bite each other and expect the world to want some of that. Now, I got plenty of that. Don't need church and that. See, the enemy does what he can to sow seeds of conflict among Christians until the seeds grow into fights and quarrels among brothers and sisters in Christ and consequently ruin the witness of the church. So if conflict is unavoidable, how do we handle it as emotionally healthy Christians? Here's the how. We're all going to have to handle it, to be clear. I mean, I think I've been clear on that. We're going to have it, so we're all going to have to handle it. Avoiding conflict in a relationship and in the church is like trying to avoid sand at the beach. Like it's impossible. 
even though you've tried, right? Especially if you have kids, you're like, let's try, let's try not to get any sand in the car. Seriously? Half of the Atlantic is getting in your car. Just count on it, right? Wherever you're at. And I mean, I've done it even myself. You're like, you're standing, you get to the car, you put the dirty shoes somewhere in the back, you bang them off. And it's like, well, how am I going to get to the back? Now, or let's go to the front. And then I'm standing on up on the side and I'm trying to do this. And then you stand up here and trying to, there's some sand that's getting in your car. You're not going to avoid it. You just went to the beach. There's some conflict that is going to happen in your lifetime multiple times. You're not going to avoid it. So how do you handle it? Unfortunately, we often do our best at doing the worst thing that we can do, and that's misreading and misinterpreting Scripture, and then applying it in a way that God never intended for us to apply it to our conflict, like this, Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I'm just going to be a peacemaker. But Jesus didn't say blessed are the pacifiers. Pacifying is for infants. That's your emotional infantude right there, right? What about blessed are the appeasers? No, that's for children. Well, here you go. Now be quiet. What about adolescents? Blessed are the capitulators. Okay, just do whatever you want to do. No, blessed are those who are peacemakers the way God intended. Not ignoring difficulty, not avoiding conflict. When we pacify or appease or capitulate by avoiding conflict, we're false peacemakers and not emotionally healthy and therefore we're unable to spiritually mature. Emotionally healthy people embrace conflict as a path to true peace. I didn't say enjoy it. I didn't say like it. I didn't say that we look forward to conflict or go looking for conflict. I'm saying you're going to have it so we don't have to avoid it. We must embrace it so that we get peace and not a false peace. Because if we avoid it, we have the false piece like those, you know, fireworks stores that have the big false front, right? Wow, that is humongous. And you walk in and it's no bigger than your closet. Like, it's a, it's a false front. But here's the reality. That's really what the conflict is like. It's this massive thing in your mind that you'll never get over. And it's all their fault. And you walk in and you see, oh, this isn't really nearly as big as I thought it was. Thank you, God. True peace will never come from ignoring the truth or pretending what is wrong is somehow right. True peacemakers love God and they love other people and they're emotionally healthy enough to disrupt false peace, trust God, and love other people in order to experience divine peace. Jesus was great at this. Although, Somehow we have created this fictitious Jesus in our minds that was never raising his voice and sheepishly backed down from conflict and sweetly and tenderly walked into situations and tried to diffuse the conflict. Somehow he was the Switzerland of the nations. Whereas I believe scripture teaches the exact opposite is true. Jesus always disrupted false peace by embracing conflict and walking right into the middle of it and speaking truth in love until everybody understood what was true, what was right, and knew how to do what they were supposed to do. So whether it was his disciples, religious leaders, and even those who were living in sin around him, he didn't even avoid that. Jesus unabashedly entered into the conflict in order to bring peace. You can't have true peace from the Prince of Peace while having pretense and cover-ups. You can't do it. Like the church is not supposed to be a lifetime movie. We're not true TV. 
which is the least thing from true. It's the most oxymoronic name for a TV station ever, True TV. And yet I can tell you unresolved conflicts are one of the greatest tensions in the church body today. If you're like me, you hate them. I hate conflict, can't stand it. But instead of risking more broken relationships, we ignore, deny, excuse, settle for false peace, hoping against all hope that it'll just go away. And we all know it never goes away, it just gets worse. Also, if we're building and expanding the kingdom of God, here's the important thing. If we're building and expanding the kingdom of God together as the church, as his body, then we have to do so on a foundation of Jesus who is what? The truth. Then we walk in unity. Then we build on a foundation of love. Then we build on something that's true, not lies, and false peace. Moving from an emotional infant, toddler, or adolescent to an emotional adult is moving from defensiveness, reactivity, and fear to openness, empathy, and vulnerability. I'll say it again. Moving from an emotional infant to an emotionally mature adult is moving from defensiveness, reactivity, and fear to openness, empathy, and vulnerability. It's not easy to put these proper skills in place, but we can do so by grace with the power of the Holy Spirit relationally. And it's the only way that it works biblically to be in relationship. Each week, I've tried to be very practical in going over these things and how we, can, how we can do what we know we're supposed to do. That's why even in the connect groups, I hope you've been involved in those and talking about how I'm going to apply this to my life right now. We've been using the book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, still doing that. Today's no different. From a practical standpoint, there are skills that we can ask the Holy Spirit to help us with if we're going to be true peacemakers and properly work through conflict by the Spirit of truth, if we're going to love others well. I'm just going to unpack a couple today before we end this service, and I'll start by focusing on one thing that we're all guilty of doing, something our enemy is really good at fostering. It's the ninth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, and it's this. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Some translations will say you should not bear false witness. Maybe you've heard it say that way, said that way. Here's point number one of this. Don't read minds. Renew your mind. Don't read other people's minds because you can't anyway, but you can renew your mind. Have you ever had somebody accuse you of trying to read their mind? Oh, so you're a mind reader now. Anybody ever said that? Oh, so you can read my mind now. No, I can't. How many of you are glad that nobody can read your mind? Yeah, you're glad, you're, you're glad and I'm glad. We're all glad. But one of the ways that we can eliminate many conflicts in our relationships is to stop trying to read each other's minds, which we cannot do. So instead, we should see that if what we're thinking or feeling about that other person is actually true by not reading their mind, but by talking to them. This avoids misunderstandings that lead to conflict, discord, and dissension, which is what the enemy's trying to sow. See, this is Satan's thing. He's in his bag when we're bearing false witness against each other. He's the father of lies. That's what he is. Satan loves to spread lies about God, uh, about you, about people around you, about the church, people that you're supposed to love in the body of Christ. And then he wants you to bear false witness about those relationships to other people. Proverbs 6 says it this way, there's six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And then in verse 19, it says, a false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. When we leave or forsake the reality 
of what's really going on for a mental construct or creation of our own making, assuming what somebody else is thinking, assuming what somebody else is feeling, assuming what somebody else is saying or doing, we create an imaginary world that isn't true. And Paul said something very clearly about imaginations. Tear them down. They're not real. The Bible calls this an imagination. We might liken it to our own little, little VR world where we envision this person that we've got a conflict with flying in on a fire-breathing dragon. And we've got a sword and we're meant to kill them or something. Like that's, that's the VR world that we create in our mind. Or we create our own caricature of that person. And when we do this, we can be sure that we have excluded God from our lives and that relationship. Because God does not exist in lies or a false witness about somebody else. It's not holy. He only exists in reality and truth and in holiness. And when we do this, when we bear false witness, we destroy relationships, we create constant confusion, we create conflict, we sow seeds of discord that grow up into weeds, choke out relationships, keep us emotionally infantile, spiritually stunted, and ruins the witness of the church. I believe we can apply 2 Corinthians 10 to this dilemma that we face as a body of believers. Listen, this isn't a problem that we cannot overcome with the help of the Holy Spirit. This isn't a problem that doesn't have an answer right here in the Word of God. This is how we do what we know we need to do. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that self sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ, and we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. See, to apply this to our topic today, what are some imaginations that you have raised up against the knowledge of God about other people who are made in his image? Or other people groups made in his image? Don't continue to build up these false worlds, strongholds in your mind about others. Tear them down. Destroy the falsities. Take every thought about that other person or people captive. Make it obey Jesus. Embrace the conflict maturely and love one another. A final practical way to eliminate or navigate conflict as an emotional adult is to not just Stop reading minds and renew yours, but to clarify expectations in this relationship. Have you ever expected somebody to know what you want before you even say it? Yes. The answer is yes. You all have. Well, I just expected. That was your first problem. Well, I just expected. Especially those of you who are like, let me just like early on in your loving marriage relationship, newlyweds or lovebirds like, oh, he just knows what I want before I even have to say it. I just love that. Well, just wait for the day that he doesn't even know what you want when you say it. Because it's coming. I love what Pete Scazzaro says about the problem with expectations. He says it this way. They're unconscious, unrealistic, unspoken, and unagreed upon. Unconscious, unrealistic, unspoken, and unagreed upon. But in order for expectations to be mutually effective in a loving relationship, they have to be conscious, realistic, spoken, and agreed upon. Now, all of this is practical, and you say, well, this is just spiritual enough for me today. Well, then do it. 
I'll show you how spiritual it is. It's hard, and you can't do it on your own. You can't do it with your willpower. But I will tell you this, as a church, we're supposed to exhibit these types of characteristics in our relationships for a reason far beyond our own personal, emotionally healthy spirituality. The main reason that we exhibit these types of relationships is because these relationships are a light to the world around us that Jesus Christ is alive. It's a, it's a light of Christ in us to the world around us that the love of God is real when we love one another well. One of the greatest gifts that we can give to the world around us is to love each other well as emotionally healthy adults. To be those that display love towards one another just as 1 Corinthians 13 outlines the way it's described for the church to do so. A love that believes the best about one another. A love that doesn't create imaginary worlds that we put other people in. A love that is biblical and embraces conflict as a way to bring about truth and grow in strength and grace. That we are biblical peacemakers. Peaceable people who know how to communicate, how to listen, how to speak, how to see people as God sees them, and how to love the way he loved us first. People like Jesus. That's who we're supposed to be. People of the cross. Nobody loved as well as Jesus. Nobody listened as well as Jesus. Nobody believed the best about people like Jesus did. And I see this in his interactions over and over again. As you read the word of God, you can see Jesus loving people well and embracing the conflict like the woman at the well. He didn't just go, well, I don't want to embarrass her. Well, I don't want to talk about what she's really doing, even though I know. No, you don't just have one husband. You have five. Let me, let me tell you about somebody that knew everything about me and still loved me. That's what happened. Or maybe the rich young ruler, if Jesus wasn't going to embrace conflict, he'd go, whoa, 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 don't leave. Don't leave the church. Come, come, come back. Let me, well, let, me, let me capitulate on that a little. Let's just figure this out. You don't have to give away everything. Just half of it. No, he went right at the conflict and he spoke the truth in love. What about Thomas, who instead of writing him off as a doubter and a traitor, he showed up and he asked a probing question as he embraced the conflict that would then lead to Thomas's restoration and becoming a disciple who would literally change the world. And this leads me to the final, the most important action that we take. One Jesus did better than anybody, and that's forgive. Don't read people's minds. Renew yours. Amen. Clarify expectations. And forgive. I didn't say forgive and forget because that's that, that I can't do that. I'm not God. And I didn't say forget and forgive. Oh, just forget about it, forgive them. You can't do that either. It doesn't work. Amen. Emotionally healthy adults forgive. We don't forgive and forget. We work through the conflict and we forgive. We see this in the gospel. This is what we see Jesus doing. Jesus came to earth and lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died in order to work through the biggest conflict the world has ever known. The conflict that separated man from God. The conflict of our sin and our separation from a holy God. So then we must allow the gospel to confront us. Yes, here's what's going to happen. We're going to talk about how sinful my life is apart from Christ. It's not just bad. It's worse than I can imagine. And we're not going to ignore what's going on in my life apart from Christ. But I am going to admit that there is a solution through the truth of what Christ has done on the cross. The answer is the cross. That's the place where Jesus said, Father, it is finished. Forgive them. 
Aren't you glad that Jesus embraced the conflict of our separation from God? Didn't ignore it, but he did appease the Father. For us, the conclusion of every conflict is going to be the same, where we come to a place of repentance and forgiveness, or forgiveness and repentance. Here's what I would say as a caution. It needs to be something that you're discerning by the power of the Holy Spirit through his word alongside those of the community, because if you forgive when you should be repenting, or you repent when you should be forgiving, you're going to do more damage than you're going to do help. Sometimes it's both and. Almost always it is. But you got to know when and where and who. Father, forgive them. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to be like Jesus, to say, Father, forgive them. We need to cry out to God. I'm going to put a prayer. I think we have this. I'm going to put a prayer up on the screen. Maybe you want to read it with me as we just end this service today in an honest cry to God to help us with whatever conflicts we might have. First of all, within this room, help us, God. Or outside of this place with other people, brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe people that don't know Jesus at all, but we're going to be, to the best of our ability, live at peace by embracing the conflict, repenting, forgiving, whatever it is. They don't have it. Thank you. So I'm going to pray it. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.